Hello, everybody. This is Joanna Harcourt-Smith for FuturePrimitive.org. And today I'm happy to welcome Amber Elizabeth Gray, who is a licensed mental health professional and psychotherapist, and interestingly, a registered dance movement therapist and public health professional with extensive experience in clinical service provision etc., etc. She is also an authorized continuum teacher and she provides training to professionals who work with survivors of extreme interpersonal and social trauma worldwide. So we are here in Santa Fe at Amber's house and I would like to ask Amber as my first question because we are fascinated by that at futureprimitive.org. Um, when you say you use eco-psychology in assisting people with healing, what do you mean by that? Well, eco-psychology was part of my training. I received my training in somatic psychology and dance movement therapy at Naropa University, or I should say I started my training there. It continues in many forms. And I took as many classes as I could in eco-psychology because the inspiration to study dance movement therapy is because of my having worked previously in cultures that not only don't separate the mind and body, they don't separate the natural world from the human world. So I already came into my training with a sense of wanting to integrate humanity's relationship to the natural world into the what I call the restorative process. So uh, it looks a lot of different ways. I mean, there are people who are actually trained eco-psychologists. Um, I'm not a trained eco-psychologist, but it's a strong influence on the work. So often I work with people outside. It's somewhat unorthodox to leave a clinical setting, but when I was working in clinical settings, I would often take people outside. So working outside presents an opportunity to integrate something as simple as the way sunlight catches the leaves and filters through the leaves as a metaphor for, you know, certain healing um, processes. Or I often have people do activities where I may have them close their eyes or still their mind and, and, and connect more to the natural world. I think sometimes it's also just being outside. It actually literally creates more space. And when there's more space, when we feel less crowded or let we feel less accelerated, there's more space for whatever healing, restoration, transformation um, to occur, I think. So, but it's, I use it a lot when I teach as well. I use a lot of eco-psychology principles. Please, if you will, tell us what kind of traumas you work with. I have focused for over 10 years with survivors of political violence and torture, survivors of war, survivors of combat trauma, uh, less but to some extent with ritual abuse, domestic violence, um, victims who, people who are trafficked victims of trafficking. So it's it's really, the umbrella term would probably be human rights abuses um, or interpersonal violence. And you have traveled the world doing this, and recently you were in Haiti. Mm -hmm. Would you talk to us about your work there? 
Sure, I, I do. I am fortunate to travel the world, and I actually spend about I take about four to five to six trips a year to Haiti, Haiti, um, and I work. My work there is very multifaceted. I began working many years ago with a program for street children in Port-au-Prince, and from that, just the networking that evolved from that, I've become connected to various programs for children who are on the streets, kids who are in prisons, have been in prisons, kids who are child combatants, involved in a lot of the gang violence that's swept through Haiti in the past several years. So my work is everything from initially working with the kids directly, but because I don't, I did live there. For 2004, I lived there. So then it was more ethical to do more direct work with the kids. Because I don't live there anymore, most of my work focuses on teaching the, the staff and the volunteers who are working in these various programs. Mostly now I'm focused on Cap Haitien in the north and a program in Port-au-Prince, um, the capital city. Um, it's, it's, it's training and capacity building for the people who live there to integrate um, what I call restorative movement psychotherapy you know, at a paraprofessional level into the, into the work that they're doing with the kids. So um, I also established a program for victims of organized violence and torture in 2004. I was living down there, and I continue to consult to various NGOs, local NGOs who continue to work with victims of violence. Um, and when I set up that program and established it, most of that was capacity building for local organizations just in understanding the impact of stress and trauma and understanding the impact not only on the body but on the whole human being and helping people who are already there, you know, to have just, just to increase capacity and have more resources available to, to, to work with, unfortunately, the growing number of victims in Haiti. Have you some ideas of what the roots of violence are? Where, how do we become violent? Are we violent to begin with? How do we become violent? I have some ideas. I'm not sure that they're particularly well um, formulated, but I think just as I believe in the idea of basic goodness, which comes out of Buddhist teachings, I believe that all, all each and every human being has a capacity for violence, has a capacity to be a perpetrator, That's one of the ways that I've learned to manage being exposed to the levels of violence I'm exposed to. I have had moments where I believe, well, I think, the, I think the roots of violence, very simply, and this is nothing original, are in fear. So the more, I, as, a, as a psychotherapist, and the more I've worked in the field of psychology, as we talk about all sorts of emotions and affect and the various things that you know, a, a psychotherapist deals with, I really am convinced that the two primary emotions are fear and love and that when we're exposed to enough in our life or when there are enough things that happen, enough circumstances or situations that we um, are mostly experiencing fear, that that is what, um, it's like the, like the Petri dish. It's like the mini lab that creates the, the tendency towards violence. So I think, um, I mean, it, it's fairly well known that exposure to violence increases the likelihood of violent behavior. Um, and I think it's because it, it triggers that fear response. 
you know, or in the work of Stephen Porges, who was just here as, as part of the weekend, you know, being exposed to something that's, that's dangerous or unsafe or threatening to life. It's, it's, it's comes out of that, that phenomenon, I think. As when you're driving and you, you do something that uh, the other person perceives that could be endangering to their life, they become very angry and might mm-hmm. make obscene uh, gestures. Mm-hmm. Okay, what I'd love to talk about is the connection between movement, between body, and psychological unease and how body movement, how you integrate that in your healing modicum? I, um, well, first of all, movement is the primary language for all people. So one of the things that in the early days of psychology, it's not, it's be, it's, it's waking up now. Um, there was, there was a, period or a spell in history where the mind and the body got separated, um, you know, the post the, the Cartesian era. And as a result, a lot of psychology was developed without a, an attendance to the body. The body is the site of all human experience. So as abstract as our thoughts or sometimes our emotions may seem, they are deeply rooted in our body, our biological processes, our physiological processes, and um, the sensations and internal experiences of our body. Movement is a primary language. I like to think of communication as being on a continuum. We start with sensory motor and movement when we're all infants, when we're in utero. We don't speak. We don't clearly state our needs or our thoughts or analyze a situation. You know, in early childhood and latency ages, we progress more to symbolic and image-based and sort of the imaginary realms. We learn a little bit later in life to, that we have a relationship to our own emotions. And then, we, then, then the cognitive or the analytical, the, 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 the capacity to verbally express, that's developed later on in life. So that's the communication continuum. So movement is a primary language. And the field of dance movement therapy historically there was a lot of expressive movement that I think was involved in the, in the therapeutic or the healing process. What I've seen because my work has focused on extreme trauma and because trauma literally, literally it's, it's, it's almost like it fixates the body in the past. I mean, that's, that's an oversimplification of what's going on biologically and neurologically, but it really to the person living in the traumatized body, the body feels fixated in the past, frozen in fear, um, sped up and accelerated beyond control, which also ends up with somewhat of a, of a frozen like quality. So what I've observed is that sometimes the work will be as big in terms of gross motor movement or expressivity as you know, people literally dancing. I literally, there may be people for whom if a story or a history is unspeakable, coming up with a movement phrase, which I've, I've actually worked with people choreographing a story like one would choreograph a dance to be able to reconnect to to the things that, that, that have happened to them. It can also be as mundane and subtle as somebody finally realizing after years of explosive rage that they don't understand, even though that I'm thinking of one case in a, 
in, in, um, specifically where somebody had been through horrible things for seven years. And um, his real pivotal moment in terms of the body was realizing that there was a sensation of intense heat that rose up literally from his groin up through his head before his, his, um, the upper brow of his lip would break out in a sweat and he would, then he would become enraged. So it was just the awareness of what happened internally and the ability to counter that first to, to be aware of the sensation and then to own it in a sense to say, this is mine. And then to, we, you know, we worked with countering it with different, with different images or different, um, alternative sensations. So it's, it, there's a real continuum or spectrum of, of what the work looks like, but the focus of it is always addressing that the roots of the dis-ease or discomfort or fear or terror um, are in the body. And at some point, unaware or aware, um, we have to reconnect to that and, and in a sense rework it and reclaim it in, in order, I think, to move beyond being in a traumatized state. I'm going to ask you a double question. Uh, one is if you would comment about what I call the victim-perpetrator bond. And the other question is, do you believe in forgiving the perpetrator, whether it be a dictator or a parent or whatever? I'm going to answer the second question first. Forgiveness is a very, very interesting concept in, in with respect certainly to the to the people who who whom I have worked with people who have been tortured for years or detained for years i you know what i'll say is that i would never expect or ask somebody to forgive their perpetrator and it's a process that i have seen arise organically i have seen people i'm not sure if they forgive but i have seen people have tremendous compassion for the depth of suffering that their perpetrator must have been experiencing to be able to perpetrate onto them. I, I'm not sure if that's exactly forgiveness, but that's, that's something that I have actively worked for with clients and I have seen emerge. And I have been around people who do forgive because they understand the larger context enough to know that it wasn't personal. And I, I think that's, it's, 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 it's a really big deal. I mean, to be able to forgive somebody, I think forgiveness can only come when the timing is right. And I think it's different for every person. I've seen people rush in after massive, you know, violence or massacres or wars and say, well, we have to forgive who did this. And the timing is, it's really an issue of timing. Um, the perpetrator victim or the victim perpetrator bond I can only speak to that from the work that I've done with survivors of torture. And I think there is a biological mechanism. I think there is something that happens that is related to the um, extreme immobilization and then immobilization that occurs when someone is constantly living under threat and their body is constantly forced to be in a state of complete fear. And I think there's probably a lot of, you know, from this field of psychology, psychodynamic explanations for it. But what I've understood in, in a sort of much more pedestrian way is that many people who are tortured rely on their torturers to be able to get one minute of air. They bring them their meals. If they're allowed to go out and go to the bathroom, which many of them never are, but if they are, it's the same person who tortures who might let them out. So... 
that's been something that I've really thought about in terms of a victim perpetrator bond. And I actually had a client say to me once, you know, it was the person who inflicted all this pain on me who also let me go out for a walk five minutes once a month. So of course I learned to love him, you know? So, and, and I think with really good torturers and I'm putting quotation marks around the word really good torturers because I mean people who are skilled at what they do, they know how to create that dependency. You know, part of it is there's also a deconstruction of the personality. There's a stripping away of all those, you know, what I like to use the metaphor of geological layers, you know, are being human. It's like we're like layers of experiences, emotions, feelings, our whole history. And it, it's it really, really good torturers can strip somebody down to the bare bones so that they're completely dependent on them. It's a power and control. It's a, it's a dependency dynamic. And that dependency can feel like a bond. It can feel like a bond. It's not, um, I think it's very confusing. I think it's a very confused bond, but it, it, it's, it's, it's a very, um, it's a very powerful phenomenon and it happens subtly. I mean, I think people, living in, you know, I always say that when they want to, when they, the powers, any powers that be want to take control, they take control of our bodies. And I think if people look around the United States, it's happening. So we, you know, we have to be very careful to look for whether on an individual or collective level to look for those seeds of where we start to lose our right to move freely and think freely, feel freely in our own body, because it's the same dynamic. It's it's on the same continuum. So... Well, this is very interesting because um, it brings up in me something that we've been discussing lately on Future Primitive. And what we've been talking about is uh, powers that be governments separating people from nature. And we've been talking about it specifically in terms of medicinal plants. Mm -hmm. um, may they be um, valerian or may they be psilocybin. And so I wanted to approach this with you because it seems to be happening more and more. Mm -hmm. Nature seems to be outlawed and it, it kind of reminds me of what you just said about taking control of the body. I absolutely agree. I mean, I think, because I think the human body, I mean, I think flesh and bone are earth. So again, that, you know, many of the more traditional cultures, uh, you know, and I don't like to oversimplify, but there are many people who've been around longer than certainly the, 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 the quote unquote Western civilization we find here, um, who never forgot the connection to the natural world. So I think, you know, the disempowerment is in the disconnect from our own body, but absolutely from the natural world. And I think the way we're, you know, covering the earth and pavement and, the whole technological age, which certainly has its benefits in terms of, you know, things that we can accomplish, but, but we're literally dehumanizing and de degreenizing, like we're denaturalizing contact, relationship, connection. And I think much of it is intentional. I, I, I believe that there is a, that it's part of a trajectory to, um, benefit a handful of people who would have extraordinary power if we we were no longer connected to the you know to the roots of our authenticity and therefore our power which is really really in the earth so i um i'm very concerned about about 
the directions of medicine and the directions of technology and um they're actually being governing bodies that decide what we can put in our body and what we can't and what we can do to our body and um I, I think I and I think everybody should be concerned because and I always say to people, all, all we have to do is go out, take a half hour and lay on the earth and just you know, if I if I spend enough time doing that I I swear I can f- feel the earth breathe. I can feel the rhythm and it's just if we did that a moment a day we would be less inclined to to buy into some of the other paradigms and metaphors that are being shoved down our faces in other words be the revolution lie down on the earth exactly yeah, exactly yeah. that's very good that uh, brings me to speak about your recent partnership with Rick and Lauren and the Raven Drum and uh, your whole drumming practice and the healing drumming. Well, I, I've i been a dancer longer than I've been a drummer, um, but because much of my dance is Haitian dance, um, we're required to learn the rhythms and the, the drumming in order to learn the dance, which is, which is you know, um, true of many... Again, many of the traditions where drumming and dancing are, are, are an essential component of spiritual and, and healing practice. Um, so I'm fairly new to drumming, but what actually happened is years ago, because I was, my inclination is to work with the body and movement and dance, working with survivors, there were a couple of things that happened. One, it's often terrifying to work with the body or to work with movement for very good reasons, because the body is... I think I may have uh, said this in this in this recent weekend that you attended, but um, the body can feel like a minefield. And then also certain ages, like adolescents, you know, they're very self-conscious. So I started using the drum as the intermediary for the body. Um, the drum, you know, it's wood, it's skin, it becomes the body. And if, if it's too unsafe to show me with a gesture or a movement, tell the drum. And the drum, you know, the drum is constant feedback. It will speak exactly what you put into it it'll you can hear yourself immediately um i met lauren when we were both teaching in the at the boulder college of massage therapy years ago i met rick after she met him and they started raven drum foundation quite a few years ago and i just feel very privileged that sometime in the last year they invited me to be their trauma and resiliency program director and um it's wonderful because it's it's I was just talking to Lauren and and um you know it's the kind of the the vision here is to bring the vision that Rick and Lauren have always carried and of course he's a phenomenal drummer um and she's a musician and a dancer and please introduce them to our listeners because we're saying Rick oh, and Rick, Lauren well Rick Allen and Lauren Monroe and they're the founders and they're the the vision and the creativity and the of Raven Drum Foundation and um i mean they have a website www.ravendrum.org so there's um lots of wonderful information about them on the website and their vision and about the program um but you know when they started raven drum it was so you know the way i would describe it is that it, it bringing the healing power of the drum to whether it's marginalized or disenfranchised or communities or people who they worked a lot in prisons and in various places where people not only wouldn't have access to that incredible creative process, but 
possibly to any um, earth or rhythm rooted healing process. As we've we're, 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 we've been really working for the past several months, we've been really really focusing on making the vision of Raven Drum, um, you know how to how to craft it or tailor it for the trauma and resiliency program, and. I I just think that each one of us has a has a piece that we contribute to the whole process and it's still it's still a work in pro- progress it's still in the process of discovery. We also have a great team at the office in Malibu and um you know really it's it's a synthesis of years that I've worked with survivors of trauma and the years that Rick has has been a professional drummer and someone who you know through his own journey of healing has really probably under probably understands the 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 power of the drum better than anybody I know on this planet and then Lauren who's a magnificent um energy medicine person and body worker and she's just uh, she's all heart so her vision and her ability to she's studied with a lot of traditional cultures and um you know she she has such a vision that I I, I th- the way the three of us are coming together is very much going to be the the work um, of Raven Drum, and we're focusing on working with veterans coming home from the wars. I'd like to hear about your work with veterans, and I just wanted to say, uh, Rick Allen um, was the drummer of a group called Deaf Leopard. Mm-hmm. Is the drummer? Is the drummer? Mm-hmm. Excuse me, and he some years ago, I think it was ninety five or you will help me, lost an arm in a car accident. It was, it was more years ago than 95. It was, I don't have the exact year, but I think you're going to interview yes, them as yes, well. I so I don't remember the exact year, but it must have been about 20 years ago, right. I, I want to say. Um, yeah, yeah. And um, lost his arm in, a, in an auto accident. And I think the process, and you know, I... I I don't want to speak for for him, but I, you know, my sense is that the the, the journey um, from whatever that moment must have felt like to, um, you know, being the 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 heart and soul of Raven Drum today. He he and Lorne are really the heart and soul of Raven Drum. Um, everything that he's experienced and learned and and is teaching us is 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 so important to to what Raven Drum is going to be doing. So. Well, we're looking forward to talking with them. Uh, And let's come back to your work with veterans and how the drum and your work with trauma uh, integrates. Well, the the work with veterans, um, I have in the past done some work with combat trauma, not necessarily our veterans, but people who have been have had to fight wars. There are many countries where people do not have a choice about joining the military. And I've worked with people who've been forced to perpetrate as part of being tortured. Um, so that, that has been my past work. The work with the veterans here in, in the United States is a focus of Raven Drum. It's going to be the primary focus. So the drum circle and the drumming program will be part of that. And we're also going to be integrating psychotherapy and eco-psychology and EMDR and um, body work and constellation work. So we're looking at a very comprehensive program for veterans. Um, We're starting now by providing drum circles um, 
you know, with, with, with finding other organizations who are doing the work and making ourselves available to bring the drum circle so that we grow the work really in response to what the veterans tell us or show us is meaningful for them rather than imposing something that, that may not be, um, uh, in terms of, in terms of the, the drum, why, you know, why work with the drum, um, drumming is a rhythmic activity and rhythm is a primary organizing principle in all life. So from the perspective of evolution, from the perspective of individual human development and individuation, and from the perspective of community, from any perspective, um, the natural world, rhythm is an organizing principle. And more and more, as I review current neuropsychiatric research and, and what I, you know, what I gather from it and grasp from it is more and more what happens when somebody is traumatized is they are dysregulated, which means they're, they lose their beat is the simplest way I can put it. They lose their beat. They go offline and it, it has roots in, in, in their biology and their physiology. It's the moment of <gasps> when the heart leaps and the breathing shifts and literally that fixation I talked about before, I, I think can become a, a new pattern in breathing, something that previously was not stressful suddenly becomes terrifying and we automatically start breathing and our heart rate shifts as if we're in danger when we're really not. That's really a big part of being traumatized. So working, creating rhythms around us, um, creating environments that are made safe in part or in full by rhythm, you know, be beautiful music. It could be beautiful music. It could be the natural world. As I said, just looking at trees and the way that they bend and sway and the way the light that's rhythmic. So, um, I, I believe that working what, with what I call, um, exogenous rhythmicity, the external rhythms influences our internal or endogenous rhythmicity in, influences our internal state. We start to reconnect, organ, reorganize, re-regulate internally. And the big feedback loop is then we start to reconnect to the world outside of us and the people outside of us. So I think rhythm is really important and really powerful for anybody, but in particular, for our veterans or our warriors who are coming home from being asked to fight what looks like an extremely difficult war to me. Um, you know, there's, there's going to be some probably feeling out of sync and feeling out of rhythm with the rest of the world because most of us have not been over there doing it. Um, we've not accompanied them. So I think working with rhythm is going to be very, very important in terms of, 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 preparing the ground, um, both for them to come back home to their bodies, but also to come back home to us. And then I think we also need to, you know, we need to be the ground. We need to prepare ourselves, which was something we talked about on Saturday at the conference, that it isn't just about what happens with them or for them. It's about us all being prepared that, um, we've asked them to do this. So, um, you know, we need to be the safe, the safe rhythm on the outside that, that, that brings them back. Earlier, we were talking about uh, something that really relates to this. Um, I remember in my childhood being told constantly, you have no ear, you have no rhythm. And so, and I was in a very abusive um, 
I mean, my mother was very abusive to me. And uh, then I started thinking about how many people have been told that they have no ear, they cannot sing, mm-hmm. and how that is a, an abusive technique, a technique for abuse, and uh, how you are working with that type of abuse. I always say that if you can, if, if everybody has rhythm because you've got a heartbeat, so everybody has rhythm, and it could be as simple as a lot of times. I just ask people to close their eyes if it feels safe. If it's not safe, just gaze softly at the ground and listen to your heartbeat, and there's your rhythm. And it can be that simple. And even to be able to walk in sync with a heartbeat or, you know, just sway or breathe, that's that's rhythm. Um, being told that we don't have rhythm or we don't, you know, we can't sing – um, I mean, everyone can sing and some people carry a tune better than others. I mean, I'm not great at carrying a tune, but yeah, it's a way of shutting down a voice and, you know, shutting down a voice, it's a way of silencing. So, and I, I'm sure that some of it happens not out of malice, but out of just sort of a, a, a sort of a negligent, um, you know, forgetting of how important each and every voice is. So it, but it happens a lot people and it, you know, some of it's intentional, some of it's not. But yeah, it, it's part of what contributes to that disconnect. It's probably like saying that some tree is not swaying properly in the wind. <laughs> you know, <laughs> who gets to say that? Yeah, yeah. yeah right. What I mean. Um, so I want to ask you, children of um, children who've been um, who fired a gun mm-hmm. and killed someone, uh, children who've been in wars. Um, have you, people who've been tortured, have you got hope that these, some of these children can reintegrate the world and regain their compassion? Absolutely. I think it's a much harder, longer road for some than for others. Um, you know, to an extent that I certainly don't understand. I believe a lot of what goes on with child soldiers and the kids that I've seen who've been involved in extreme violent gang activity um, to carry out somebody else's political mission. Um, You know, the thing about childhood is that is when our brain and nervous system are developing. And in my understanding, which is fairly, um, you know, it's a non-scientist understanding of science, we're really not, we're really not, I'm going to use the sort of gross expression, hardwired like a computer, you know, we're not wired really until our late adolescent, early, you know, twenties. So anything that happens, any conditioning, any exposure, any, um, you know, brain kind of washing or brain, um, whatever people, you know, uh, forcing somebody to think or act in a certain way literally becomes part of that person's structure, their personality structure. There's a f- great, um, Bruce Perry is a, he's a developmental or child psychiatrist. And he wrote an article that really was, was pivotal for, in my understanding, um, and I don't remember the whole title. It's the, it's the maladaptation of neurological, something or other, but it's when, when states become traits and it's helped us to understand that the states that we experience as adults that are rooted in fear or terror, that with the right support, we may be able to shift out of can become the foundation of personality traits and kids. Having said that, um, so that makes the work much more difficult, but I think 
um, I think it might have been Rudolf Steiner who said every kid deserves a chance. And I have seen that kids, even kids raised in some of the most horrific environments, some of the kids that, you know, have been on the streets since they were really, really little in Haiti and have committed atrocious acts already. Um, I've seen them reach out to be held or, you know, try to, um, try to put their shoulder, you know, on somebody's or put their head on somebody's shoulder for comfort. So it's, if, if we don't miss those, those moments when a person actually connects to their, to their humanity, um, I think there's plenty of opportunities to start to weave them together so that a person, um, you know, can shift out of constant violent behavior into something that's more, um, communal and more interactive. It's, it's very difficult. I mean, it's, it's difficult. And again, it, it also falls on society or community. I mean, that's what I was just saying about the veterans. I mean, there's a lot of talk about, well, what do we need to do? What rehabilitation programs do these kids need or do these veterans need? And you know, you know what? We all need it too. It's, it's, I, the, the first step is really the education and the awareness raising of the masses, because if people can do all the work you want, but if people are sent back to a community who still believe, oh, well, you did these horrible things, so you're no longer a person or you're a monster, then it doesn't matter. So it actually is really, I think, more about where people are going back to or going home to or being reintegrated into. Um, that has to be there. That's, that's the anchor that people can connect to. To create a nest for these people who are coming home mm -hmm. from horror. So, uh, Amber, we're going to bring this conversation around and I uh, wanted to ask you if you would like to talk a little bit about your plans for this year and uh, what else you'd like to add for people who are listening, what your heart wants to say to us. Well, my plans for this year are to spend... I'll just say to spend as much time in nature as I can. I'm going to go camping a lot this summer <laughs> um, because that's part of what keeps me connected. Um, really, the focus of, of the work that I'm doing is I really want to continue to support Lauren Monroe and Rick Allen and their vision. I mean, Raven Drum is, is, is one of the things that I am most passionate about. So um, we're spending more and more time working together. We're we, we really, we really just started to, um, it was back in July and August, we decided to really try to bring this together. So that's going to be a focus of my time and teaching. I'm, I've been traveling a lot to teach and I'm going to start teaching more in Santa Fe. I'm, I'm just found a location where I can offer the training series that I offer and I'm hoping cause Santa Fe is such a great place. I'm thinking, well, maybe people will come here and save me the plane rides. Um, what I'm really excited about is, is, is in terms of the idea of preparing the ground is I meet so many people who are in school now and who are 20 years younger than me or, you know, looking, looking at a, at a, at a future, you know, what are they going to do? And there's such a need out in the world and there's more, there's more, um, job searches where people can actually find, they want somebody who do, wants to go do work in Darfur or Indonesia, wherever it is. So I would love to, I, my, my plans are to start teaching more so that there are more people who, um, don't have to, to some extent, there's always a baptism by fire. I, a lot of us who are in the torture treatment field, you know, we learned baptism by fire because it was a new field, but 
any way that I can support people, um, getting some roots, uh, underneath them before, before they go out in the, in the world and encouraging people more and more people to do this work and to be of service. Um, that's, that's what I'd like to be doing. So, and dancing. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I think we'll just stop it here. Dancing, yeah. dancing, dancing. Thank you, Amber Elizabeth Gray. Thank you so much.